Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Quick, come on. They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Excuse me. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal. Thanks. Wow. Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ie forward slash music. Getting a divorce, even thinking about getting a divorce, can be overwhelming, scary, and sometimes exciting. Join divorce coach and mediator Mandy Walker for conversations about divorce. The more you know, the easier it will be to make your divorce healthier, less stressful, and to put it behind you. Here's Mandy. Welcome to Conversations About Divorce. I'm Mandy Walker, and today we're talking about the essential financial preparations for divorce. Now, you are going to have to gather all of your financial data, and I do mean all of it, for the legal process. This is the part of the process that many of my clients find the hardest and the most overwhelming. Most of them find it far more challenging than figuring out the parenting side of a divorce, which is maybe surprising. Now, people postpone, they procrastinate, they delay all of these financial things. Um, But the truth is, the sooner that you do this, the better it will be for you. Because once you have all this financial data and you've started to pull this together, you'll have a good idea, a much better picture of the impact, the financial impact that divorce is going to have on you. You'll, it'll, it removes so much of the uncertainty. It brings clarity and you'll be better prepared for the legal process when the time comes. So how do you get started on it? Well, I have two guests today. The uh, pros in this area, David Schwalach and Renee Sennis. David and Renee are financial advisors based in Concord, Massachusetts, and they're authors of the book, Money and Divorce, Costly Mistakes You Don't Want to Make. Welcome, David and Renee. Thank you, Mandy. We appreciate you uh, giving us this this opportunity. Thank you, Mandy. Delighted to be here talking about this subject. Great. So I wanted to just dive right in and say, you know, one of the common mistakes that I see, um, and this is purely, it's a mistake in my opinion, is I have a client, a a client who comes to me and they want to start discussing a settlement proposal, but then I find that they, they don't actually have a complete financial picture. They're actually talking about how the biggest one is usually who who's going to stay in the marital home and how they're going to buy them out or what's going to happen to that. But they haven't gathered all of the financial data. So I'm curious, you know, as I said, that's my opinion that that's, that's a mistake to start those negotiations before you've got everything gathered up. Is, is that something that you agree with or, you know, what would you advise clients to do? Absolutely. And, and in our book that you mentioned, 
we list 10 mistakes and that happens to be mistake number two, um, failure to identify all the assets. Because you're right, people want to come in, whether they meet with an attorney first or a mediator, and they want to get right into, you know, what can I expect in alimony or child support and, you know, who gets the house and, and, and all that stuff. But the first thing we do with, with everyone that we meet with is to make sure that we not only identify the all, uh, excuse me, all the assets, but appropriately value them as well. Right. And so valuing them is something that I want to guess is, is really what I want to talk to you about today. Um, but then I was, the, the other thing I find as I'm, as I start having those conversations with people is that they'll start saying, well, the checking account, this, this account is mine. It's in my name or the, the IRA, this, this one's mine. It's in my name. But, um, just because it's in your name doesn't necessarily make it mine, does it? <laughs> well, that's a very difficult concept for a lot of people to understand. And, yes. and particularly, I think, around things like 401k plans and retirement plans, um, people tend to not understand the dynamic. Well, they certainly understand the dynamic of a marriage, but the dynamic that goes into a marriage is the same dynamic that goes into a divorce. It's a partnership. You've made a contract with one another, whether it's implicit or explicit, as to one party may be earning money, one party may be staying home and taking care of the children. And you need to understand that just because you've earned it or it's in your name doesn't mean that it's yours for the purpose of a divorce. Right. So um, generally speaking, if an asset or a debt was acquired after the marriage and it was acquired using marital assets, then at least some part of that asset is going to be considered marital and subject to division. I tell clients not to start worrying about that piece of it until we've got everything on the table. Okay. So, so by every, everything on the table means you, you come up with everything you own, even if, for example, it's in your name and your mother's name. Right. You need to put that on the table and, and disclose it. And is it, a, is it important at this point to identify whose name is on the accounts? Like you say, you and your mother? It, it is, it is, it is important. Um, in fact, when we, when we draw up the, the assets that a couple has, the marital assets, we'll identify whose name it's, it's under, who, who owns it. But in terms of the division of assets, it doesn't matter quite so much, but for the sake of let's putting it, put everything on the table and let's list out, you know, what's in his name, what's in hers name, what's in her name. We do, we do pay attention to whose name, you know, accounts are registered to, or, um, you know, who property is owned by. But once, once it gets to the division of the assets, it's, it's not quite as important whose name it's, it's in. Right. But then it, it's helpful to have that already recorded because, when you have decided what's going to happen to everything, you then do have to make sure that accounts get retitled or transfer titles get transferred appropriately so that those assets are actually owned by the people that you want them to be owned after all of this. Right. And what we and part of identifying who owns an asset is we try and advise our clients when they're dividing assets to try and move the least amount of assets as they possibly can. So if each party has a 401k plan, there's no sense dividing each 401k plan. 
Right. We can balance out based upon who has the larger asset or whether or not there are other IRA assets. And identifying whose name it's in helps us do that. Okay. All right. So that's a, a smart move there. Um, in your book, you do say that you need to make sure that you have at least uh, have three years of tax returns. Now, um, before we actually talk about why you need that, let me ask you, if, if you don't have the tax returns and let's say your spouse is the person who's always handled the tax, but you're not quite ready to walk, say to them, hey, can I have three years of tax returns? Because you don't want to alert them to what you're thinking about. Is there a way, is, are there other ways that you can get them? Can you get them from the IRS? Yes, you can. There's a form called a 4506 that's a request for your tax return. And then there's a shortened form that allows you just to get a transcript of your tax return. So you can file that with the IRS. It doesn't come quickly. And of course, there's a charge. But that's certainly one, that's certainly one way to do it. And if you haven't self-prepared, if you do have an accountant, this is a great time to make friends with your CPA so that not only do you have your tax return, but you can have a good explanation of what, what the numbers on your tax return mean. Okay. All right. Um, but with other documents like the value of your spouse's 401k or a credit card that you know that exists but you don't ever see statements for, um, I'm guessing maybe you might just have to wait until the legal process starts before you get that those pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, that, that's right. Unless Renee knows knows a trick around this. Unfortunately, you don't have any legal right to get statements for your spouse's retirement plans or accounts that are solely in their name. In a perfect world, once once the couple starts discussing the, the prospects of divorce, we hope that, um, th- you know, there's open disclosure and, and sharing of documents. It doesn't always work like that, but it certainly works much easier for, for yeah. everybody involved if right. um, if both spouses are open with sharing what they have in their own names. Mm-hmm. So there's um, a little bit of sort of, oh, I just wanted to add to that if I can. Yeah. There's a little bit of backing into this that people can do, although not necessarily for retirement plans. And that's where the tax returns come in handy. Because the tax returns will list every bank account and every brokerage account you have if they pay interest or dividends. So and you may not have access to the statement, but at least you know that you want to look for it. Okay, so that that was actually going to be my next question with with the tax returns. Um, are we talking about just the the two pages from the ten forty, or do you want all the other schedules? Well, I like clients to take a look at a Schedule A that at least shows them what their real estate taxes are, what their mortgage interest is. And then your Schedule B is going to show you, as I said, every every bank account that you have or brokerage account you have that pays interest. And your Schedule D is going to show you any stock, bond, or mutual fund trading that you've been doing. Again, go look for that account. And then if you've got someone who's self-employed, you certainly want a Schedule C, which is going to be the net profit and expenses of a business. Okay. So that's, uh, as I always call it, the alphabet soup of um, tax returns there. You got it. We can keep going with schedules, but that'll do it for now, I think. Okay, so you do want the full, uh, like all of all of the schedules that go with the ten forty, and then you just want to you want to definitely look at A, B, C, and D. 
And correct. And what I'd like clients to do is lay them out side by side so that you're scanning across the returns to look for any major discrepancies. Okay. You know, what happened three years ago that's not happening now or what's happening now that didn't happen three years ago. Right. So this, so that's some very sort of basic steps that people can take. And it doesn't sound like you really need to be a financial wizard to be able to to spot differences, but you do have to be maybe prepared to take a little bit of a step out of your comfort zone. That's right. And I, and I think one of the reasons, in addition to what Renee said, why we like to see a few years of tax returns is oftentimes if one spouse has been thinking about divorce for a while, especially if they're the main breadwinner, we don't assume that anyone's going to do anything illicit. And very rarely do we see it, but it does happen where one spouse in preparation for, for filing for divorce, they might want their income to look a bit, little bit lower than it has been in previous years. So if they're self-employed, they may be able to fiddle with the numbers a little bit um, to, to make it look like they're earning less than they are. And, and we can also see, um, as Renee pointed out, any stock or bond or mutual fund sales and in most cases, as we point out to our clients, the proceeds from these sales are simply reinvested. Right. But in some cases, perhaps the proceeds are sold and, and the cash is withdrawn from the account unbeknownst to the other spouse. So, you know, what's going on with that money and what was that used for? Right. And so that um, brings me to my next point very nicely. Thank you, David, is, um, you know, you as gathering part of part of gathering all of your financial data, you do need to identify all of the bank accounts and credit cards. And, um, and I know here in Colorado, it, once you start the legal process, you are required to give your other party, at least the current statements, which include transaction data. So, um, what would you tell people to look for on those statements? Well, I tell my clients that essentially you need to know four things in a divorce. You need to know, and we've covered some of this, what you own, what you owe, what's coming in, and what's going out. So your assets, your liabilities, your income, and your expenses. And what you're looking for on credit card statements are transactions that um, either you don't understand, you were unaware of, don't necessarily seem to benefit the family because not only do assets get divided in a divorce, but debt gets divided in a divorce. And you really want to be looking at that and saying, is this marital debt? Was this used for the benefit of the family? So we actually tell clients if there are concerns that they really want to go back and get almost three years of credit card statements. Right, right. Um, I was thinking to get three years, you might have to be actually wait for the legal process to start or that, you know, if you, if you do have those concerns, then that would mean that you really do need to be working with an attorney rather than trying to do this just by yourself. Um, well, not only with an attorney, but in, at least in Massachusetts, if you are mediating, the rules for discovery are the same as the rules are if you've hired an attorney. There's a, a process of full disclosure whereby you exchange all of your documents with the other party and put them on the table so that they discussed and reviewed. Right. And you can do that in mediation or litigation or in a collaborative divorce. Good point. And then on, on bank accounts, 
Um, one of the things I've learned to do is to actually look for withdrawals and transfers out to other bank accounts and to make sure that those or um, any numbers that are listed on the bank statements that you have on your list of accounts. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably not unusual for someone who's who's anticipating a divorce or or beginning the divorce process to want to have their own bank account. Um, that's that's hidden from from their spouse, if not hidden, just separate from their spouse. So you'd want to see, you know, what those accounts are. You want to make sure that they're disclosed when you get to the point where, um, you know, er- everyone exchanges information and, and you know exactly what they have. Hmm. Because the, even though you've transferred it to your own account, it's still it's still marital property. Right, right. And I will like you touched on this earlier, David. That I will say again, it's not unusual. It's not uncommon for people to remember accounts that they have, but those accounts aren't used very often, or that. So it's not malicious or an intention to deceive or, or hide away assets, but more like, Oh my gosh, I forgot about that account. It doesn't have, it had hardly any money in it, but that still needs to be on the table and disclosed. It's pretty rare for us to, to, to meet people where, where one of the parties is, um, you know, trying to be, trying to be deceptive or, or hide things or dishonest. But we also teach classes on the subject of money and divorce and, Probably every class is one person in the crowd that will have the questions that relate to, you know, I think my husband's doing this or I think he's hiding that. So we, we know it exists. We're we're fortunate that we we don't deal with it very often, but we're you know, we're not naive enough to think that it that it doesn't happen. Right. Right. Well, um, we're going to take a, a short break here. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Listeners, I'm Mandy Walker. This is Conversations About Divorce. And today we're talking about the essential financial preparation for divorce. My guests today are Renee Senes and David Schwalek. David and Renee are financial advisors based in Concord, Massachusetts. Their firm is Senes and Schwalek Financial Advisors, and they are the authors of the book, Money and Divorce, Costly Mistakes You Don't Want to Make. David, I have a question for you. Over your years for practice, what do you see as the most common financial mistake that people make? I think without a doubt, it has to do with the house. Um, and more often than not, if there are children involved, um, especially if there's a stay-at-home mom, the, the, and I, can, I can see why this is tempting. The, the mother feels like she wants to keep things as normal as possible for the children as they go through divorce and will often tell us, they want to keep the kids in the house no matter what, whatever it takes. And it could just be for, for normalcy. It could be to stay in the same school or school district. But unfortunately, many times it turns out to be a pretty, a, a pretty big mistake for them. They're, they're in the division. They're getting an asset which is 
largely illiquid. And consequently, the husband is getting most of the liquid assets, cash and retirement plans. And unfortunately, you can't pay for groceries with home equity. Right. So that's probably the biggest mistake that, that I see. Right. Good one. Um, so the, listen, is David and Renee's book, the subtitle is 10 Financial Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Um, so th- there's a lot of important gu- important guidance in there. It's available on Amazon. I do recommend that you, you check it out. Um, I, now I want to kind of go back to gathering some of the financial data. And one of the areas we haven't talked about yet is, is pay stubs. And this, again, is something with the required disclosures is you not just you can't just tell the other person how much you're making, but you have to provide them with pay stubs. Um, what um, what else? What other than the salary information, Renee, perhaps you could share with our listeners. What else do you think? What? else do you tell clients that they should be looking for? Uh, Good question. So when you're looking at a pay stub, you can find out whether or not someone to begin with is salaried or whether or not they're paid hourly. If they're paid hourly, is there overtime? If it's a straight salary, are there bonuses and commissions? All of this will show up on a pay stub. You'll also see whether or not um, there's money going out into a 401k plan, a retirement plan, or a 403b plan which gives you some feel for if you don't actually know already what's in what's in an account you'll get some feel for what your uh what your spouse has been contributing on an annual basis. Right. You'll see what the cost is for medical, dental and vision insurance. Um you can find out whether or not there are union dues and you'll also find out whether or not there are benefits like restricted stock options or employee stock ownership plans all of which sometimes People don't disclose. They don't really think it's an asset. It has to do with my employment, so I don't have to tell you about it. But all of that shows up on a pay stub. And all those kinds of things need to be taken into account in a divorce. So when you're looking at the pay stub, you will know very, very clearly you get a complete financial picture of what your spouse's work life looks like and where there might be assets that you hadn't thought about. Right. So... Good point. Look at the deductions on a pay stub. Um, I'm going to jump to vehicles and cars now because practically everybody that I work with has at least one vehicle, one car. Um, what, um, you have to put a value on these. What, what is the, what do you suggest as being the best way of valuing them? I think the most common methods are to use, um, the Kelly Blue Book values. Um, I believe the website is kbb.com. I've also been told that edmunds.com is a a website that a lot of dealers will use to value how much a a motor vehicle is worth. And so when I've looked at Kelly's, I mean, you have options there for whether you're doing it as a trade-in or a private sale. Does Does it matter which one you use? Even... I mean, we're not, te- I always tell people that you're not selling your car. It's just, we just need to come up with a value for it. I, I would probably use the, the private sale value. Although I'll, I'll tell you this, what, what we see a lot of is husband has a car that he uses. Wife has a car that she uses. R- rarely is that a sticking point right. for, 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 for asset division. If, if the husband's been using the, you know, the Honda Accord for a while and the, the wife's been using the minivan. Um, very rarely is that a sticking point. And if, if there's a difference in a few thousand dollars, 
it um, very rarely is is a point of contention. But um, if I could just add to that, yeah. Mandy, if you wouldn't yeah. mind, the biggest problem that I see with cars is that they're very often not titled the way they're used. <laughs> so as as David said, you know, the wife's driving the was it the Honda Accord? The minivan. Like the it, the it minivan. Fact, <laughs> that's right. She's the wife driving the, wife the, the minivan. minivan. Yeah. Okay, the wife's driving the minivan, but in fact, it's titled in the husband's name, yeah. or it's titled in both their names, and there's a loan against it. Right. So in order to transfer title, you can't transfer title on a car that has a loan on it. Right. So there's got to be some decision about refinancing this, or paying off the loan, or temporarily having one spouse drive a car that's not titled in his or her name until such time as the loan can be refinanced. Right. So I think it's really more important to look at how the car is owned and whether or not there's a car loan against it. Right. So that kind of ties into one of the, the very first point that we were making and why it, it is important to understand whose name is on the account. Um, oh, good. Absolutely. Relates right back. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I was tell people my clients is it, it really doesn't, if, if you're planning on keeping both of the cars, then it doesn't matter whether you use private sale or trade in value, but they both need to be valued on the same basis because then you're comparing apples with apples. Unless there's a reason like it's the vintage Mustang that, you know, for it to be valued differently. Um, we want to be trying to make sure that there's, uh, the, the, there's the same basis of valuation. I would that's agree right. with that. That's very, very sound advice. And and lease cars have no value because they just go away at the end of the lease? Well, a leased car can sometimes have a value if it's being if, if the lease is being paid for by an employer. So if I go back to the pay stub, you can often uh, find out whether or not there are travel expenses and business expenses that are being reimbursed, whether or not there's parking fees that are being reimbursed, as well as an allowance for use of a car. Okay. So if someone has significant expenses that are being paid for by their company, we see that a lot with some of our high-tech employees. Then right. you want to factor that in. Right. Good point. Um, we're kind of speeding through things here, but the next category I wanted to jump to was um, retirement plans. And IRAs and 401ks seem pretty straightforward in terms of valuing those. We can take the value from a recent statement, but I did want to ask you about pension plans. I wondered if you could, first of all, say, you know, how does a pension plan differ from a 401k? And then how do you, is it, is it easy to spot when somebody has a pension as opposed to a 401k? I'll, I'll start it out and maybe you can, you can compliment okay. Sounds my good. comments. Um, the, the, the main difference is, a pension is um, it's it's a future income stream, so it is without a doubt more difficult to value. Um, I, I will I will make a point. You said it was very straightforward to value the IRAs and four hundred one k. No, and, and that's right. But this isn't exactly what you were asking. But I'll I'll bring up a point that we we tell our clients. It's much easier to divide an IRA account than it is to try to transfer money from a 401k to, okay. a, to a divorce. Um, you don't need a qualified domestic relations order or a quadro to do an IRA. Most, most IRA custodians require a form and a copy of the divorce agreement. 
So it's very simple. So if we see clients with 401ks and IRAs, and we know that there's going to be money changing hands, we'll do whatever we can to see that it's done through the IRAs rather than the 401ks. It's it's much easier. And there's an additional cost to when you need to have a To do in the quadro. Okay. That's right. Right. So, Renee, I don't know if you want to talk about the pensions. So, okay. So, uh, it's a very, very good distinction, and people don't often understand it. They will typically come in with, you know, a statement from their pension plan saying, this is the amount of money that I have in my pension plan today. And that, in fact, is not the value of your pension. The value of your pension is something called the present value of a future stream of income. In other words, when you turn 65 or when you retire, what will your pension pay you every month for the rest of your life? And that's an actuarial valuation. We can do them for our clients. Right. And clients are typically very surprised to find out just how much their pension is worth. Um, Very much like Social Security, although Social Security is not divisible in a divorce, it has the aspect of being a pension. You get paid every month for the rest of your life. And so when we do that pension valuation, we figure out what part of it was earned during the marriage and what part of it was earned outside of the marriage. And the part that was earned during the marriage can be divided. And then you can look for dividing it as a stream of income or if there is sufficient assets, offsetting it against another asset. Right. So this is where the spouses really maybe have opposing interests, because if you're the spouse that has the pension benefit, you'd like to use the current value. Whereas the, you're, if you're the spouse who doesn't have the pension benefit, you really need to know what the pension value is, because it's going to be Correct. much higher. And the other thing, right. And the other thing you do need to understand about a pension is Pensions divide in different ways. Some pensions, the spouse, the non-employee spouse, cannot take their benefit until their ex retires as well. And so if there's an age discrepancy, let's say it's the wife and she's a teacher and she's got a pension and she's younger, the husband can't start taking his interest in her pension until she retires, which might mean that he's well into his 70s before he has any pension benefits. Right. Whereas other pensions divide and each of you can take your benefit whenever you choose. So right. it's very important when you're looking at a pension to know how it works. Right. I've always thought that pensions just... are a lot more complicated than 401ks. But <laughs> Mandy, you, you brought up an interesting point. Um, you said how one spouse, it might be in his best interest to use the, the current value of a pension and the other spouse might, it might not be in her best interest, but she might not know any better. Right. And we see this all the time in couples where one spouse is more financially savvy than the other. And it's very easy to make mistakes and be taken advantage of in, in a divorce situation, especially when you're the, the less financially savvy one. Not to mention that it's incredibly emotional time. So many people just want to end it as soon as they can. So, and we will we will often have mediators or attorneys who send their clients to us specifically for that reason. You know, they they'll say to a client, particularly in a mediation situation, why don't you go see Renee and David, get some financial information, understand what you own and how it plays out in your division of assets, and then come and back then come to mediation back. a little right. bit better prepared. Right, right. Um, 
And I've seen that as well. And I think that, you know, it, it kind of goes back to you really, it, it is better to approach this with transparency and really understanding what everything is before you get into negotiating. Um, I, I do have a complication about 401ks that I want to ask you about, and it applies to 403bs as well, but, um, loans. Because I have seen quite quite a number of clients who have loans against their four hundred one ks and four hundred three bs, and I think um, what do you th- that can make it a little bit more complicated, and it's and it's harder to understand. Um, what what do people need to be careful about with these? I was going. One of the things you need to be careful with with a four hundred one k loan is that um, if you leave the company, the loan is immediately due and payable. Right. And if you do not pay it, then it becomes considered a distribution, which means it's subject to ordinary income taxes. And if you're under 59 and a half, you've got a penalty. 10% penalty. Right. So you need to make sure that you understand the terms of the loan. And the other thing I would sort of look at, want to look at in a divorce is what was the loan taken for? So did you take a loan against your 401k to pay for your daughter's college education? In that case, it was a marital debt. Or was the loan taken against the 401k, unbeknownst to the other spouse, to use for something that was completely non-marital? In which case, you might want to negotiate about what the value of a 401k is going to be. Right. But when those um, loans are getting repaid, it increases the value of the person's 401k account. So it it seems like the, the, the loan is both an asset and a debt. Well, the loan is getting repaid typically by a payroll deduction and going right. right. The person is paying themselves, the person is paying themselves back. Um, but they're doing so by, by loss of income every, every week or every other week as they're, as they're replenishing that amount. Okay. So how would you, what do you see people do typically with lo- debts, loans? in on 401ks do they leave them kind of take them out of the picture or somehow divide it and offset it by other debts i would i would say um you have to if if there are other assets the loan could be offset the other thing you could do is just take the net value of the 401k so if it's uh has a value of fifty thousand, but there's a ten thousand dollar loan Rather than valuing the 401k as as um, fifty thousand, you're valuing it at four at forty thousand for the sake of um, division of assets. Okay, because then the person who keeps the 401k and is paying back the loan still gets is getting the credit for both the debt and the payback, the increasing value as they pay back the loan. But they are doing so with with current income. Yes. With their own current income. Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> it's complicated. Um, I have one more area that I, I really want us to talk about um, kind of quickly. David, you touched on it before, but it's um, usually a couple's largest asset is the house. Um, and we don't have time to, t- to talk about, you know, how to go about deciding what should happen with that. But um, the first step is getting some idea of the value. Um, what do you recommend people do if it, if this is the the first initial run through on gathering all the financial data? 
how do you recommend that people come up with a value for the house? So the first thing we would have clients do is to seek out local realtors who are familiar with the market and ask for what's called a competitive market analysis. Now, most realtors will do this as a complimentary service because if they've been doing this a while, they understand that there's a possibility that this house may be listed for sale and they hope that they would be selected as the listing agent. So this is um, information that real estate agents put together based on local market values and comps and, and so forth. Um, oftentimes, one spouse will have one agent do it. The other spouse might have their, uh, their agent do it. In, in a situation where the, um, the two parties are, are getting along and sharing and, and so forth, that's usually the best way. If it goes beyond that and there's some big disagreement as to the value, then an appraisal might be in order, which is a little bit right. a little bit different. Right. But more often than not, the competitive market analysis is enough to to get a an appropriate value for the home. Right. So that's a good place to start and actually would, figuring I, out right what might be the best option for handling that. But and Renee, I would add, it's a add. very good place to yeah. I'm sorry, I would add as a very good place to start before you even get to that is go get your real estate tax bill from your town or city. And while it might not be right on point as to a, a market analysis, it will at least give you a general price range. Hmm. Interesting. Um, as, as to how the town values your house or how the city values your house. And it will break it down. Um, and it's, you know, it's competitive with everything else that's in your particular area. So at a very first blush, I go get your tax bill. Okay. All right. I'm going to add there that here in Colorado, you have to be careful about that because our houses are assessed every two years. So depending on your timing, you might be using a, a house value that's two years out of date. So it, it's probably right. Worth, but again, worth knowing it's, it's a what the basis of um, valuation of your property. But at this point, we're looking for a starting point, a starting value. Correct. So another good starting point is simply to go to Zillow.com. Okay. Yes. Um, it, it's a website that I'm told even realtors will, will consult. The realtors certainly go above and beyond just looking at the Zillow valuation. Right. But if you're just getting into the process and you, you know, you, you've owned your home for many years and perhaps you haven't refinanced, so you haven't had a current appraisal for many years, and certainly the market has, has changed significantly over the last 10 or 15 years, Zillow is not a bad place to start just to get a ballpark figure as, yeah. as to what your home might be worth. And there's also there's Redfin and HomeSnap, so a couple of other apps. I sometimes tell, tell people, mm -hmm. go, go on all three, see what they all say, and then take an average. So take a midpoint. Yeah. So just to get started. Well, Renee and David, this, this has been wonderful. Renee, I have one last question for you. I asked David earlier about what he saw as the most common financial mistake that he sees. Um, what about you? What do, what do you find in your practice? Well, I would agree with David that the house is probably the most common financial mistake. But since we've already talked about that, I want to add that another large asset for most people is that 401k plan or their retirement assets. And the other common mistake that I see is people don't understand the tax liability on their retirement assets and look at it as, you know, this, this is money that I can live on currently. And in fact, unless you're over 59 and a half, 
it's not money you can live on currently. So you need to be very, very clear on what the tax implications are of each of the assets that you have, because people fail to understand that each asset has its own tax liability and its own tax implications, and those really need to be considered. Right. Good point. Um, Thank you, Renee and David, again. I know that talking about money and finances can be very dry, but it's so important. And I love the work that you're doing and putting out this great book, Money and Divorce, Costly Mistakes You Don't Want to Make. Um, I think that that's a, a really good place for people to start and to start getting educated about finances before they go through this divorce process. So thank you. Well, thank you, Mandy. It's a pleasure to uh, speak with you and your listeners. And thank you as well. Thank you so much for including us and for conveying this important information. Mm-hmm. We greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. I, I, I just want to add, you know, and I think we talked touched on this a little bit. Um, David, you may have mentioned it, but what I do see commonly is that one spouse is super comfortable with the finances and the other isn't. And it doesn't matter how much a couple has this. It creates an imbalance of knowledge and that usually leads to an an imbalance in the negotiations. It doesn't always work in the favor of the person who knows all about the money because sometimes it leads to indecision and a fear of not wanting to make a mistake. It can make the divorce process drag on much longer. And um, when it gets dragged out like that, it often means people are spending more money on it. So I think it's really important for you to get um, kind of like open your eyes and to finally confront learning about finances. Um, you might still be bewildered and overwhelmed. There are other resources out available, as um, Renee and David said, working with the financial advisors. There's also a certified divorce financial analyst. Um, I'll put a link to the locator for those in the write-up of the show. And the CDFA has a methodology for helping to gather the financial data, pulling together settlement proposal and the knowledge to help you assess different proposals. And if you and your soon-to-be ex are working together cooperatively on it, then you can work with one financial professional that will help you both figure out what is the best solution for both of you. There's really no reason for you to struggle with this on your own. I want to thank you for listening. You'll find a synopsis on my blog at sincemydivorce.com. I'm Mandy Walker, and I hope you'll join us again next time for more conversations about divorce. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.